Good afternoon. Happy Friday. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. High energy, high optimism. The Toronto Blue Jays are back. They win the narrative paradox game where two struggling teams had both just come up with a big win. Only one could continue that momentum. The other obviously was meaningless for the narrative paradox game. The Jays come through nine to two. I'm Blake Murphy. This is Jays Talk Plus. We're with you till five o'clock before we kick it over to fan drive time. Jays Yankees series continues tonight. 7.05 first pitch with Ben Wagner on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And an early reminder, I'll remind you a couple times throughout the show, Apple TV Plus game tonight. So it's free. But you got you to gotta get Apple TV Plus. You got to fire it up. It will not be on Sportsnet. I believe this is the second to last one of these for the Blue Jays uh, this season. You'll have uh, Steven Nelson, Katie Nolan, Heidi Watney, and a name I'm drawing a blank on for the fourth person as a part of that broadcast. Nonetheless, uh, you have that to look forward to, or you can listen to Ben Wagner on the call with us. We got a loaded show today. We're going to close it out with Ariel Helwani. It's a, it's a big UFC weekend, but Ariel's also been down at the Jays-Yankees series. I believe he's doing some at-the-letter stuff. Took his kids to the game, was on the field, palling around with Alec Manoa yesterday. I will talk to him. We'll talk to June Lee of ESPN and Around the Horn. Bring Sarah Langs from MLB.com on. Before any of that, we're going to get to Ben Nicholson-Smith in just a moment here. Refresher if you missed it last night. 9-2 Jays win. They get 13 hits, still only go 4-14 with runners in scoring position, but helps when you get so many opportunities. Uh, The highlight in that one being, other than George Springer's five hits, yes, five, uh, Vlad with a wall scraper that would have only left Yankee Stadium. Uh, That is what you call getting hoisted by your own petard, New York Yankees. We got a lot we could sort through from that game. Uh, Let's bring in Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet, of At The Letters, talk about it ben how are you buddy doing great just crossed the harlem river so approaching the bronx in a in an uber here with nick Andrade, one of our producers and ben wagner so we're uh we're almost at the uh the place we're meant to go to tonight in yankee stadium wow you could just put it on speakerphone while ben wagner is a guest too um you got to do at the letters from yankee stadium yesterday how cool is that it was great. I mean, Yankee Stadium is such a cool place. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of energy to it, a lot of history to it. I know, of course, it's a new facility, but it still kind of carries over some of the facility or some of the energy and history from the previous spot. So great to be in New York, had the chance to have some really good conversations, some of which are already up um, in the in the podcast feed for, for anyone looking to listen to it. But it was, a, it was a great experience and definitely some more to come on that front. Um, yeah, I, I haven't gotten a chance to listen yet, but I know in the one that's up, uh, you guys spoke with Ross Stripling uh, about his return from the IL, that, that uh, near-perfect bid. How, how was the chat with Stripling? It was great. I mean, Stripling coming off the perfect game bid, you know, he had some good insights into that. But I, I took away from it more so where he's at and where this team is at at this point in the season. And it's pretty interesting to hear from him that, Early in the year, the Jays kind of thought the talent would carry them, and they thought that it would all come together at some point, whether it was the hitting and the pitching and the bullpen. They kind of expected that at some point it was just going to click. And then Stripling says that they kind of realized recently that it's not necessarily going to happen that way. They have to make it happen. They have to talent aside, and of course they have a lot of talent, they have to make sure that their preparation 
that their intensity is there to the level that it has to be because they realize nothing is going to be given to them. So I thought that was an interesting insight. And with 45, 44, 45 games remaining in the season at this point, there's still a lot of time for them to be able to work their way back to where they need to be. Now, does it not concern you at all, but does it did it strike you as interesting that that's kind of a tacit admission that they hadn't been doing that every day? Or are we just, you know, there's 162 games and it's it's not realistic to expect a team to be fully locked in for an entire season? I think I appreciate the honesty from Stripling because, you know, in a sense, you could easily say in that situation, you know what, we've been giving our complete, complete focus and intensity and we've had the right approach. And it's these outside factors that have conspired against us. And it's it's something beyond us. But I think there's an element of accountability in his answer there where he's saying, actually, there's more that we could have done. There's more that we can be doing. And the Jays are ready to embrace that and take that on. So I, I see that probably more as a positive. Now, ultimately, that doesn't matter unless they can actually achieve that on the field. And two wins in a row doesn't change the fact that they're still battling with teams that they should absolutely be dusting in this playoff race. But I do see that comment and that perspective as a positive for the Jays. Uh, you can check out more of that conversation uh, between Ben Nicholson-Smith, Arden Welling, and Ross Stripling, as well as uh, a bunch of other chats over at the At The Letters podcast feed. Um, you can go to youtube.com slash sportsnet uh, as well, and a lot more to come from this weekend series. Ben, in addition to Ross Stripling six perfect before uh, giving up a hit in the seventh on Wednesday, uh, and I was right next to Ben Wagner for that one. That was a, a fun one to kind of observe him calling. Uh, prior to that, you had been pretty critical of the team on Twitter earlier that day. I don't want to take credit away from Stripling, who obviously had a big day, but did you have a hand in this uh, being a little more, you know, usually you're you're pretty reasonable and pretty zoomed out on things. That was uh, That was a pretty critical evaluation of, of where the team was at. And, and honestly, I would still double down on that even after a couple of games. I, and I think, you know, it, it is, I, I try to be reasonable in looking at, at baseball in general because it's a sport that kind of demands that you zoom out and it demands that you have a little perspective or else you just ride, you know, a 162-game roller coaster. And that's probably more exhausting um, than it needs to be if you're really going to react to every single game emotionally. But the reality is if, if this team is playing – 500 ball for an extended stretch if they are underperforming if they have all of this talent and all of this investment in the team and yet they're still middling and still fighting with the twins or the orioles or the guardians I mean, the guardians run one of the lowest payrolls in baseball they did absolutely nothing at the trade deadline the blue jays have no excuse to be losing to this team or fighting with this team in the way that they are it's just they're on a different level when it comes to the investments from a payroll standpoint and from a, a trade resources standpoint. So I still think that this Blue Jays team needs to do a lot more to justify the investment in it and, and to really capitalize on, on a talented, talented roster. And so if the next 44 games go to their potential, they're going to be in a great spot and they're going to be positioned to make a deep playoff run. And that's what it's all about. But there's no guarantee of that. And they still have to push and they still have to get to that point. That is the macro view. And I agree with you completely. And, you know, you can't you can only do it one game at a time. So, you know, not everything's going to change overnight. The first these first two games, um, a good step in that direction. I know you said you still feel the same way even after those two. But um, for you to come out of this, you know, you're sitting uh, at the harbor in Boston on Monday on the off day between traveling series and you and Ben Wagner are, are putting one back and 
you get to thinking, wow, that was a successful weekend. I feel good about where the Blue Jays are headed now. What does that weekend look like for you? Great question. And uh, unfortunately, I won't be in Boston oh. for that one. So that'll be, I'm not sure who will be, uh, Arden, I guess, will be there uh, maybe having a, a beverage or two and, and contemplating that question. Yeah. Well, but, then you're in here with me and uh, we'll sneak exactly. a beverage in or something. Exactly. That sounds great. But, you know, I think to get to that point, so they won the first game. We know that now. So at this point, you got three games left. Win two of three. So if you go three or four against the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, there is no doubt. That's a really good series. And at that point, they would be eight games back in the standings. That's still a lot. But they would have gained on some of the teams in the wild card chase. They would have restored some momentum. And they would have really shown themselves, most importantly, and shown the other teams around them that they are better than what they've showed for the last period of time. So I think at this point, win two of the next three. Um, going into it, I was saying try to split them, but they already banked one win. So I think now win two of three, and then that would definitely be a success. Heading into Boston, rest up on the off day, and then face a Red Sox team that is not great, and then have the chance to beat up on the Cubs and the Angels. Not only did you pocket one already early in the series, and you can shift that look from splitting 2-2 to, to winning the next 3-2-1, you pocketed one that... If you were going to identify which games would be the wins, which games would be the loss, that was probably a big question mark because of how Jose Brios was pitching coming in. That was a tremendous piece of work from Brios last night. Um, how big is that for the team to not only get that kind of start out of Brios where you see the ceiling, but even just that nod? And I know there were some uh, adjustments going on. You can get into those if you'd like, um, but getting some semblance of the Brios that they're relying on, um, it, it certainly makes the rest of the series and the rest of how the next couple of weeks line up rotation-wise breathe a little easier. It, it definitely does. I think going into this series, Brios and, and Kikuchi, to a lesser extent, although, you know, of course, his impact is going to be muted one way or another now that he's in the bullpen, but Brios was a huge question around this team. And I think that continues, to be honest. I mean, it will take more than one start, but hey, take what you can get. This is a tough place to pitch. It's a really tough lineup, and he was effective. He was really good. So you have to be pleased with that if you're the Blue Jays. If nothing else, you bank the one win. And, of course, there are questions moving forward about can he command the fastball enough? Is this contract, which still has six years and $20 million per on it after 2022, I mean, is that a deal that's going to cost the Blue Jays moving forward? Of course, these things loom over Jose Barrios still, but to get that win on the road against one of the best lineups in baseball, that's a great step. And so for the Blue Jays now, that's something to build on, for Barrios to build on as they move ahead. And, and his next couple starts could be against significantly weaker opponents than this one. Not could be, will be. Uh, there, there aren't, short of the Dodgers, there aren't weaker opponents than, uh, or there aren't stronger opponents than, than this one, at least when they're going. Um, did you get a chance to talk to Brio's postgame or, or Pete Walker or anyone about some of those mechanical changes on the fastball? Or is that more of a, hey, we'll revisit this next start story? Yeah, I haven't had the chance to dive okay. in too deep on the, on the mechanics there. But one way or another, that's a, a huge question for him because the fastball's been hit, as you know, Blake. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just been crushed all year. Yeah, until last night. And then it looks uh, a little better, a little better protected. Uh, hopefully that's something he can carry over. You mentioned there as well in talking about the rotation, Ben, that you say Kikuchi is going to have less of an impact now because, of course, he is in the bullpen. The note that came out earlier this week that Kikuchi had 
offered to go to AAA. Now, he has that clause in his contract that even though he has options left, he has to accept uh, an option to AAA. Um, what does that tell you about where he's at and, and what he's trying to accomplish now that, you know, that was like five months ago he worked that into his contract, and now he's saying he's willing to do that? Yeah, I mean, that's it's definitely significant. Um, it goes to show a lot has changed for Kikuchi in the course of the last five months. Uh, and unfortunately for the Jays, it's changed for the worse. I mean, this is, and, and I know, you know, that the bullpen is a new experience. We'll see uh, if he can build on, on last night and potentially become someone who can be uh, a useful arm for the Jays. To me, it really comes down to, is he able to command the ball? And I would count myself as a skeptic on Kikuchi in the bullpen at this point because, you know, shorter stints, longer stints, you still have to put the ball over the plate. And he's just had so much trouble doing that this season, despite the velocity, which is there, despite some of the movement on his pitches, he hasn't had that consistent command to be able to put it where he wants. And so, uh, you know, I think low leverage situations like the one that the Blue Jays put him into last night make sense. You never know what can happen. Of course, you want to put him in a good position to succeed and say the right things, give him support behind the scenes. But realistically, uh, there are it'll take more than one outing to answer the question. Oh, we may have lost uh, Ben Nicholson-Smith there, um, but that's okay. Ben's uh, in an Uber on the way to Yankee Stadium. There are bigger things ahead. Ben, do we have you back? I'm here. Okay, there he, there he is. Um, so what does, for, for Kikuchi to look... I mean, last night's a, a low leverage. He walks the first batter on four four pitches. It, it didn't look good, and then he rounded out of it. And I, I think even saying, you know, hey, he got out of that is lowering the bar too far at this point. Um, is there something you're looking for from him where, like, would a, what would have to happen for a light to go on for you where you're like, you know what? I think the reliever Kikuchi thing could be valuable the rest of the way. It's... That's a great question, and it's it's hard for me to imagine what that would be. It would be a lot of strikes. It would be just pounding the strike zone and not walking hitters. I mean, if he went, if he goes three weeks and he doesn't walk anyone, then I would say okay, because in that situation, he's going to induce swing and miss within the zone. He's going to induce some weak contact within the zone, and he'll get some quick outs. Um, so if he could go three weeks, so you know whatever that is, is that 15 innings and no walks? then I would be intrigued. Um, now, what we've seen from him in the course of the last couple months, especially, is not someone who's capable of doing that. And that, to be fair, it's not an easy thing. Walking hitters in the major leagues is something that most pitchers do. Even good pitchers sometimes will walk hitters. But for Kikuchi, it's been really, I'd say, an obstacle to him being even a replacement-level pitcher this year. And so for me to change my evaluation of him or what I think he's capable of, I would have to see an extended period where he's just not walking hitters. Yeah, that makes sense to me as well. And that's, you know, that's kind of the key thing we can talk. And I have talked uh, to Eno Saras and a few other people about why Kikuchi might be a good relief candidate. And it said, well, he can sit 96, 97 a little more often in the slider plays, but all that kind of unravels quickly. If the fastball can't find the zone, um, let's turn it a, a little more positive before we let you go here, Ben George Springer, five hits last night, eight of 13 since his return. Uh, are you like, first of all, I mean, his importance to this team insists upon itself. It's self-evident, but say Springer can only hit from here. How happy is this team just to have him back at the top of that lineup every day, even if it means Whit Merrifield and Jackie Bradley Jr. in center field? 
I think you have to be thrilled with just what he's able to give them offensively alone. And I don't think it was a given coming back from the elbow injury and just given the way that he had played and how uncomfortable he had looked on some of those swings that he took before going on the injured list. Plus, coming back with no benefit of a rehab stint, no chance to get his timing in a game setting, it is definitely not a guarantee that he would look the way that he has and produce the way that he has since then. But what we're seeing is a really productive George Springer. We're seeing more comfortable swings. Uh, we're seeing uh, you know, body language and reactions from him afterwards that suggest he is in a better spot physically, which, of course, is the, the root of everything here um, as he's dealing with this, this elbow issue and elbow discomfort. So to see that he's in a, a physical place to allow him to do the things that he's doing on the field is huge. And I think defense has to be considered a bonus at this point, but the offense that he's giving the Jays is, is, is huge. And that's uh, you know a $150 million player doing some pretty special things out there. It sure is. And, you know, man, five hits. I, I don't care what the contact or the, the exit velo are on any of those. That's anytime you string five hits together, uh, it's a blast. I, I thought overall the Jays had a pretty good approach at the plate last night. Um, you look through, obviously, a couple guys had really big nights. Um, but two moments that stood out to me, uh, Santiago Espinal, who's been very, very hot over the last five or six games, uh, didn't get a hit last night, but works a nine-pitch walk late in the game uh, to lead off an inning. And then there's the Lourdes Gurriel uh, hit-and-run single in the fifth on an eight-pitch at-bat. When John Schneider says Wednesday that he's focused on the approach with this team and sometimes a walk or moving the runner over is the best outcome for an at-bat, are those the kind of things he's, you know, I know they don't do video sessions in baseball as much as basketball, but, you know, that's the kind of tape he's rolling to show guys? Absolutely, and I think... You know, it's obviously just different schedules between those two sports, right? But I, I would I would strongly believe that if the Blue Jays had an off day after every game, they probably would do video sessions and they probably would highlight those things. And that's the exact type of at-bat that they would point to as a positive. Now, I think the daily demands of baseball just doesn't really allow for that realistically. There's always the on-to-the-next mentality and just trying to prepare for that next challenge and that next pitcher. But, you know, it, right now between games, as we kind of pause and look at what went well for the Blue Jays, some of those at-bats where they're really working the count, uh, spoiling the pitches that don't work for them, those are indications of a, of a team that's not pushing it too much and that is starting to click a little better offensively in the course of the last couple of days. Ben Nicholson-Smith, uh, thanks so much for taking the time out. While you're in an Uber, no less, uh, thanks to uh, Ben Wagner and, uh, sorry, I forget the name of the, the producer you're with, but um, thanks to them for putting up with it. And uh, thanks for, for, I haven't listened yet, but I assume you're just telling everyone that Babe Ruth would be a candy ass in today's major leagues and you wouldn't draft him too high. So thanks for all of that, Ben. Well, well wait a second. I would draft Babe Ruth 1-1. <laughs> one, one. I would draft him 1-1. One, one. Uh, now, I think if you dropped him into today's game, I think he would struggle, of course. He's never seen Velo like this or movement like this. But as a prospect, even if he turns into Shohei Otani light, we're talking about someone with incredible raw power, the ability <laughs> to, to produce under pressure, and he can pitch. So I would draft Babe Ruth 1-1. One, one. All right. Uh, there you have it uh, in this very likely hypothetical. Uh, ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet, of At The Letters. Check out that chat with Ross Stripling on the podcast feed or youtube.com slash Sportsnet. Uh, looking forward to everything else to come from you guys at Yankee Stadium this weekend. Perfect. We just arrived. Uh, so, yes, thanks a lot, Blake, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. What unbelievable timing. That's Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet and At The Letters. We're going to take a break because we're juggling guests with Ben and At The Letters right now. Uh, when we come back.
of the Ariel Hawani show of the MMA hour. It's Ariel Hawani on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with J.D., Blake, and Ailish. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Try to tell you it wouldn't be this bleak forever. Uh, The Jays have won two in a row. Maybe helping out by being down at Yankee Stadium, bringing some of that Canadian energy, that good Canadian vibe. Ariel Helwani of the Ariel Helwani Show and the MMA Hour. He's going to join us in a minute here. He's down in New York. Big UFC this weekend. UFC 278, big title fight. Usman and Edwards. I don't want to make Ariel talk about that too much. This is a baseball weekend for him. He's out there doing at the letters. He's out there palling around with Alec Manoa. He's out there doing Jay's Talk Plus. What a weekend for him. And then, yeah, he's also the best MMA journalist in the business. And, I guess, wrestling journalist, too, sometimes. He's out there talking to Billy Corgan about NWA. What doesn't Ariel do? Um, Jay's Yankees continues, by the way, 7.05 tonight on Apple TV Plus on the Sports Night Radio Network. Ben Wagner on the call for you. Uh, Show Ali and Julia Kreutz will have Jay's talk for you after the game. Jay is looking to make it three in a row. Three in a row doesn't sound like a lot. Doesn't look like much when you peruse the wild card standings. But it's better than where they were at. Uh, it was quite the quite the spin there. By the way, little standings update for you. Jay's at 63 and 54. Uh, one game back of Seattle for that top wild card spot. Tied with Tampa Bay for the second and third wild card spots. They would not have the tiebreaker in that scenario. Uh, Minnesota game and a half back. Baltimore two and a half back. The White Sox three back. And Boston five back, which is an interesting number to look at. Because, of course, once they're done this series with the Yankees, uh, the Jays are off to Boston for a three set. It's a Boston team that... Has not been very good, but is still hanging around the periphery to where if they beat Baltimore three times this weekend, you might be looking at them as a possible late bid wildcard threat. Not super likely, but there's always that possibility. Uh, you can send your texts in too, by the way. We'll sprinkle them in throughout the show. You can send them to 590-590, or you can tweet me at Blake Murphy ODC. Let us know. How are you feeling after two pretty big wins? 6-1 to steal one from the Orioles series. Ross Stripling with a masterful performance in that one. The bats coming alive in a big seventh inning. And then last night, 9-2. Vlad with a wall scraper. George Springer with five hits. Jose Barrios back on the good side of the ledger with some mechanical changes to his fastball. The real change around the Jays, though, last night was they had the energy of this next guest. Of the Ariel Hawani show, of the MMA hour. Ariel Hawani, how are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for coming on. Uh, a lot easier to book you when I'm not doing a show with JD. This is uh, the, the JD effect. Eh? It's a little easier without him. Uh, don't get me started on JD, that jabroni. <laughs> I mean, golly, this guy. All of a sudden, he thinks he can just like text me whenever he wants in the middle of the night that I'm going to wake up at 6.30 in the morning. 
to do his rinky-dink program. I mean, come on. What are we talking about? Now, uh, JD's got to learn the heel stuff, uh, not just from you, but I, I, we're going to Monday Night Raw together on Monday. Uh, his brother has never been to wow. a live wrestling before. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to teach him the ropes. We're, we're going to get him up to speed a little bit, Ariel. I love it. I love it. Uh, Raw's been good lately. WWE's been good lately, so it should be a good show. It's not bad, and you can check it out on uh, Sportsnet's channels. We're the home of WWE here in Canada. Wow. Um, yeah. What a plug. <laughs> exactly. Um, also on Sportsnet channels, last night, uh, the Jays beat the Yankees. You got a chance to take your kids to the game, get down on the field uh, beforehand. Uh, how cool was that for you as a baseball fan and as a dad? Oh, my God. And first of all, is this like Blue Jays talk? Blue Jays? This is like the pre-Blue Jays talk? Because I listen to Blue Jays talk all the time. I know you're on like a million different shows, but it's a great honor for me to be on any kind of version of this program. Uh, I listen almost daily when I can. Um, and, yeah, yesterday was really cool. So just to give you a bit of the backstory, uh, Alec Manoa's agent, a guy by the name of Jeff Rendazzo, used to be an MMA agent as well works for um, an agency called the Balanchi Group, and they've represented the likes of Stipe Miocic and Eddie Alvarez, Curtis Blaze, Aljamain Sterling, many others as well. So I became friends with them, and I remember when Manoa was uh, drafted, and he told me that that was his guy. So ever since he was drafted by the Jays, since the Jays are my team now, uh, I've kept a, you know, a close eye on him, and he told me that any time you know, we wanted to go to a game that he would hook us up, and I don't usually like to ask people for things, but this time it worked out and he said that we'd go on the field for BP, but I didn't really comprehend what he was talking about or believe him. And we actually got to go on the field for BP. And there I am with my kids and my wife and Manoa's there. We got to talk to uh, Jordan Romano and Jackie Bradley. We got there a little late. So we didn't get to see all the guys, but it was super cool. Cause when I was a kid growing up in Montreal, I would go to the big O all the time, two and a half hours early with my brother for BP to get autographs, usually of the visiting team because it was special to do that. And this is the first time that I've done this sort of thing with my kids. My kids were very shy. So I was asking Jordan Romano for his autograph and Jackie Bradley for his autograph, which I felt a little strange as a 40-year-old man doing that. But it was a really, really great experience. And I think what Jays fans would uh, love to hear is that Manoa is, and I'm sure you know this as well, exactly how he comes across on TV. What a lovely down-to-earth young man, a personable guy, a big MMA fan as well, which was a nice thing to, to see and just like a real pleasure to meet for a few minutes. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm so glad you guys got to do that. And that's great to hear about Manoa. I knew he was a, an MMA fan, which obviously means then he's an Ariel Helwani fan. So it must have been a, a cool one for him as well. Um, if you were, I, I know you probably don't have the stats memorized on every guy in baseball, but if you're picking like a handful of major leaguers to make the transition to the octagon, Manoa's got to be right near the top, right? Oh, my God. Uh, he's a freaking tank, that guy. Wow. I mean, he looks big on TV, but uh, he is he is large. I, I posted a picture of us standing next to him when we took a family photo, and uh, he is huge. Wow. Very, very impressive. And he told me that a lot of the guys on the team uh, are big MMA fans, that they were planning on watching UFC 278 tomorrow night. And he really knew, like he knew about – Curtis Blades' uh, recent fight and Aljamain Sterling. Like, I guess he follows a lot of the guys that Randazzo used to, uh, to represent. So I, was, I had no idea. I really don't think he had any idea who I was. Um, and I'm going to try uh, when the season is over. To, he told me that he loves Masvidal. Uh, they're both from Miami, of course. And uh, 
he uh, he said he's a big fan of his, so I'm going to try to link them up. I already spoke to Masvidal's manager about it, and maybe they could do a few training sessions together, and I'm sure that would benefit him. Yeah, definitely. I, I remember talking to uh, Fred Van Vliet a couple years ago about him doing some of the, I think it was Corey Anderson uh, at the time. Now he's in, in Bellator, but um, yeah, the the Rockford connection there. So that'd be good. We got to see if Manoa's really that into the, the MMA. We got to see him on the area Hawani show or the MMA hour at some point too. Uh-huh. We got to uh, we got to work that. That, that yeah. would be great. Yeah. Uh, I know I know Bichette is a fan too because I saw him take a picture with GSP when they were in Montreal. <laughs> and he posted something about how it was great to meet him. So you know, there's a lot of closet MMA fans out there. They don't always talk about it, but a lot of people, especially the youngsters, you'd be surprised. A lot of fans. So. You grew up an Expos fan. We know this. It's been the, the Expos had in your Twitter avatar forever. Uh, you mention it whenever yeah. you can. Um, your kids are obviously being raised without a Montreal Expos team. Have you nudged them towards Jays? Are they, are they more on the, the New York side? How are they? How's their fandom kind of shaping up here? Oh, no, 100%. They're, they're all in on the Jays. Perfect. I tried to initially get them to be Expos fans. <laughs> then I realized that that was very cruel to raise kids uh, liking a team that no longer exists. I will forever. I mean, even yesterday, if I go to a game, I have to wear my Expos gear. I have to keep the Twitter avatar still, you know, rocking until they come back. And it was looking like it was going to happen maybe the last couple of years, and now it really doesn't look like it's going to happen. But it just warms my heart to uh, to represent them and to represent my city. And when my kids – you're – boys are now 10 and 8 you know all their friends are yankee fans hmm. and i you know initially i think they were confused and they were asking me why can't we be yankees fans i'm like trust me you don't want to be yankees fans they're they're the evil empire everyone here is a yankee fan you want to be different and now it's 100 percent, you know settling in and they're all in and they loved the game yesterday and they didn't want to leave we had to leave early because my daughter is young but they were so pumped to meet some of the guys and vladdy hit the homer and i'm freaking out and they, then they went home and were like making fun of their friends that the Jays killed the Yankees. <laughs> so it really, they've, 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 they've bought in and I'm hoping in the near future, they'll get to see a world series champion. I, I never got to see that of course. And I, I hope they'll get to experience that. Now you got robbed of it with the, uh, the lockout season yeah. or the strike season, uh, which is brutal. Um, when you mentioned Vlad, I, I'm curious. So obviously he was born in Montreal. His dad played for the Expos. You know, the only Expos gear. I, I have an Expos hat, but I also have a Vlad Sr. jersey kicking around. Do you, as a Montrealer, like, is he kind of, uh, obviously he's everyone's guy because he's the face of the franchise and he's awesome, but a little something special as someone kind of carrying on that Montreal baseball tradition? One million percent. I'll even go further and say that when the Expos left in 2004, I uh, stopped watching baseball altogether. I went to the final series at Chase Stadium. I mean, I adored that team. And it always bothers me when people say, like, there weren't any fans. They didn't exist. It wasn't true. And so I went there, and I remember going home on the subway with my brother, crying, being so sad about the fact that my team just doesn't exist anymore. Like, I couldn't quite wrap my head around that, right? Of course, there could be bad seasons, good seasons, but, like, they just don't exist. I didn't know how to, you know, actually digest that. So 2004... All the way, honestly, until around 2015, I did not care at all about baseball. And, uh, you know, I obviously knew about Alex Anthopoulos, and I knew he was a Montrealer. And so, you know, there's one Canadian team, although, as you know, Montrealers, you know, like the root for the Toronto <laughs> teams, and everyone was mad that Toronto voted in favor of, of them being contracted. So there were some hard feelings there. 
But Anthopoulos, in that final season where he went for it, getting, you know, Tulowitzki and David Price and all that, I, I really, like, uh, grew to respect him. And I was rooting for him because it felt like he was the underdog with this new regime coming in. And so I really, like, immersed myself in the team. And that's when I started to listen to all the broadcasts and Jay's talk and all that stuff. And ever since then, I followed them. And, of course, I knew when they got Vladdy Jr. And I've always loved Vladdy Jr. And, and tried to follow him when you started to hear about him. In fact, in 2003, when I was a junior at Syracuse, my background on my laptop was the famous picture of Vlad Sr. and Jr. where Jr.'s, um, you know, tipping his cap as like a four-year-old. Like I've, I've had his picture on my computer dating back to then. So when he was on the Jays, drafted by the Jays, I was like, oh, my God, this is too perfect. Now I'm all in. And to explain to my – like it's very emotional for me to tell them that like I watched that guy's dad. And it wasn't even that long ago. Like I'm not an old man, but I watched him at the Big Ho at the Big Oak, excuse me, cranking these these home runs day after day, night after night, and now I get to see his son do the same. Like, yesterday was the first time that I saw Guerrero hit a home run in front of my eyes since 2003 when Vlad was on the Expos. It's a mind-blowing thing, and the fact that it's that same kid doing it for the lone Canadian team is just an amazing thing. So, yeah, I mean, he's my guy. I bought them jerseys, T-shirts, all that stuff, and I'm just so excited for him and, and, and proud to be a fan of his. That's amazing. The, the only thing missing from that story is we just got to work on your camera work just a tiny, tiny bit. That's all. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was watching. I was like, oh, this is my, I think it was his first time up in the game. Or maybe it was his second. But anyway, I was like, this is a perfect angle. But, and he kind of looks like him. A little, obviously, you know, his dad was a lot skinnier and taller. But, you know, the 27 Guerrero, this is great. I'm going to capture this. And then you can you can kind of hear if you listen closely, he hits it, perfect swing, the ball flies. I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe it. And then in that moment, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm zooming in, I'm zooming out, I'm trying to watch it with my eyes. I'm trying to watch it on the screen, uh, and I was being very obnoxious, yelling, "Vladdy, Vladdy!" Uh, luckily, I think we were in like the players section because we got the tickets from you know Manoa's agent, so there were other Jays fans there. But I was like, I couldn't believe, like, what are the chances that I'd be <laughs> recording that one moment and he hits a freaking three run moonshot. It was, it was amazing. I loved it. That's so great. Um, I, I guess, so I'll ask you from, a uh, obviously a fan perspective, but you're, you're a very smart sports guy anyway. Um, when you look at where the Jays are at right now, they're coming out of a bit of a, a rough patch, but you know what the ceiling looks like for guys like Vlad, for guys like Bo. Um, when you look at what the playoff race is right now, I know you mentioned you, you hope that your kids get to see a World Series one day. Maybe it's a year too early for that. Uh, but how do you feel about their chances of, of making the playoffs and then making a little bit of noise there? Yeah, and, you know, it's a bummer that you even have to say maybe it's a year too early <laughs> because, you know, they were the World Series favorites at the beginning of the year. And, uh, I would be lying if I didn't say this season has been a bit of a, I don't know, a disappointment. It's been confusing at times, right? Because mm -hmm. they go through these nice stretches where they're looking great. And then they go through these stretches where it looks like, what happened to these guys? And obviously no one would have wanted, you know, the manager to get fired and all that, uh, I don't know, dissension and all this stuff. The one thing that I'll say about this team is I really do believe in them. I really think that their ceiling is super high. I really think that if they could get in, just like the Braves did last year, they could go on a run. The one thing I wonder about them from afar, and I'm sorry for the honking, this is New York City traffic, but <laughs> the one thing that I would say is I, I wonder who is the leader? Who, who is the guy? Who is the voice? Who's the one that's picking them all up when you know they're going on a, on a losing streak? And I, I don't know who that guy is right now. There's a lot of young guys 
There's a couple of veterans, the Springers of the world, but who is that voice that is that is leading them? And when you lose a manager, sometimes you, you lose that voice. And you know, Schneider's new to the scene as well. I I, I hope that they have that voice and that leader if they're going to make a run in the playoffs. And if they don't, I think that they might need that veteran voice. And that was what I was hoping for come the trade deadline, and they didn't really get it. Uh, but I still believe in them. I still think they're going to make the playoffs, and I still think that they'll be an incredibly dangerous team come playoff time. Yeah, they're going to be – I'm certain the Yankees and Astros would prefer not to run into them uh, if the Jays yeah. get through. Ariel, i uh, got to ask you one quick one on the UFC side before I let you go. UFC 278 tomorrow. The weigh-ins were today. Um, if Edwards is going to pull off this pretty significant upset against Usman, what does that game plan look like for him? Oh, well, I mean, and, and by the way, thanks for asking me a UFC question. I'm sure all your listeners are dying to talk UFC right now. We have Ariel um, Hawani on on a weekend of a big uh, UFC event. Uh, I got to get one in. I appreciate it. Listen, Leon Edwards, if I can equate this to baseball, Leon Edwards is the Toronto Blue Jays right now. A lot of people don't believe that he can do this, you know, and, and, and then Leon Edwards is in the Bronx, so to speak, and he's fighting the big, bad Yankees, right? And he's fighting Kamar Usman, who a lot of people consider to be. You know, oh, we have lost Ariel Hawani, which is, oh, oh are sorry. you back? We got you back. Okay. You got me? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Edwards I'm is back, the I'm Jays. Edwards is the Jays. Usman yeah. is the Yankees in the Bronx. Yes. And, and, it, and it's a Herculean effort to go in there and sweep him. And it's a Herculean effort to go in there and beat him up and to steal, you know, that mojo away. But I really do think that Leon has it in him to do it. And I think that Leon, if he can keep this fight standing, I know that's a very big if, and I know that's a tall task, and he could use his speed and his striking and his movement, I think Leon can win via decision. Can he stop Usman? Uh, I don't know about that. But Leon via decision, I've seen it as high as like a plus 1,000 in some places. I think that's crazy. This guy has been scratching and clawing and fighting his way to this moment, and I'm not sleeping on him. I don't think he's going to get rolled over. They fought once before. That was seven years ago. And if I'm being honest, I think Usman may be feeling himself a little too much now with the movies, with the winning streak, all this stuff. He thinks he could fight Canelo. He could be ripe for the taking. I would not sleep on Leon Edwards. I think if he could keep this fight standing and, and, and kind of withstand that early rush from Usman in his first title fight, I think he's very much a live dog. Don't sleep on Leon Edwards. Don't sleep on the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Ariel Hawani, I know you yeah. got to go because you got at the letters momentarily here. Looking forward to that. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. My pleasure. And tell... JD, I got two words for him. <laughs> okay, I will, man. Um, thanks so much. Ariel Hawani of the Ariel Hawani Show, of the MMA Hour, of just about anywhere you'd get your mixed martial arts content. A great interview he had up uh, this week at the Ariel Hawani Show on YouTube uh, with Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins, who now owns uh, NWA. That was a. Uh, the wrestling, not the hip-hop group. Um, that was a, a really fun interview Ariel did. Just seriously, one of the absolute best in the biz. Um, yeah, the Expos hat, always rocking it. Um, we don't have a Jays lineup yet. I thought maybe we would by right now. So let's go into, we, we've got a couple guests in the second half. We've got Sarah Langs and June Lee coming on. So let's look at the pitching matchup now. we got a few minutes here before we go to break. It's uh, Jameson Tyon on the Yankees side of things. It's Kevin Gosman for the Blue Jays. Tyon, you know fairly well. 
you should anyway. He's only faced the Jays four times already this year. Uh, 30-year-old righty, Canadian roots, about as consistent as it gets in terms of his surface stats matching his underlying stats. He's got a 395 ERA, a 402 fielding independent pitching, and a 404 expected ERA based on stat cast metrics. So no matter what way you slice it, Javis Zatayan has pitched exactly like a four ERA guy so far this year. It's not bad for the middle or back end of your rotation. That's, uh, you know, when the Yankees starting rotation looked pretty deep, it was, man, you got to face Tyon at the back of this. Now that Garrett Cole is struggling a little bit, Jordan Montgomery is gone. Um, Luis Severino is on the IL. Their, their rotation doesn't look quite as strong, but that doesn't mean Tyon's any less effective. He doesn't walk anyone. Pretty good chase rate, so he will get you to swing and stuff outside of the zone. Uh, not a huge whiff rate, so even though he'll get you to swing outside the zone, a little bit of a Jose Barrios-ish in that low walk, he'll get you to expand the zone, but you can make decent contact on it. Difference is Tyon throws about 100 pitches, and he has monster spin on all of them. Uh, basically, the results this year have been that you can hit Tyon for average, but you're not getting free passes, and it's a little tough to hit him for power. That is kind of antithetical to how the Jays have been on the season. That's the type of guy they've struggled with a little bit. But maybe they're coming out of it. 13 hits yesterday. Some station-to-station -station stuff. A big rally inning on Wednesday. What looked like their kryptonite for a couple weeks. Maybe, maybe it's coming at the right time. Team identities are not static. So, I mentioned, Tyon throws infinite pitches. He's going to throw a 94-mile-an-hour fastball about 35% of the time. Opponents are hitting 248 after, off of it, swinging and missing about 24% of the time. Those aren't bad numbers, but it's a pretty average pitch overall. That's the baseline, though. And then, against lefties, he's going to follow that fastball with changeup, curveball, cutter, Sometimes a slider. Against righties, he'll actually lead with the slider, then go fastball, sinker, curveball, cutter. So he'll throw five to lefties, five to righties, six overall. I went through some stat cast searching. There are only four other pitchers this year in baseball who have thrown six different pitches 100 times or more. Tyon, Chris Bassett, Kyle Gibson, Taiwan Walker, and Joe Musgrove. Tyon is by far the most balanced of those guys as he throws his number six pitch a little more than 9% of the time. Essentially, there is no pitcher in baseball who relies on using six different pitches with some regularity as much as Tyon. Now, that might not be the case tonight because the Jays are so right-handed heavy that he might just not need to use that uh, you know, the le the left-handed side of things, the way he approaches lefties a little different. So we might not even see his change up tonight. Maybe it's only the sinker he's going with there. Um, he does have slight platoon splits, but nothing too significant um, this year or last year. Um, and then if you go back pre-injury, pre-2020, uh, he was actually split neutral at one point. So uh, not a huge argument to to stack the lineup with lefties, even if you had them. And the Jays don't. The Jays have seen Tyon a ton. 
shut them out over five and two thirds. This is all this year, by the way, shut them out over five and two thirds, gave up two over five and a third, gave up one over six, gave up two over five. So four starts this year, all of them, he got into at least the fifth or sorry, got through at least the fifth and all of them, he allowed two earned runs or fewer. That's 22 innings total, five earned 22 strikeouts to three walks. It's pretty good. Overall, he's faced the Blue Jays, uh, the active Blue Jays, for 153 plate appearances, a 308 expected weighted on base average. That's the stat cast metric that looks at, looks at walks, strikeouts, and quality of contact. That's pretty good. Everyone on the Blue Jays, all 13 guys, have faced him at least four times. Springer's got a bit of a funny history against him. He's two for 14, but he has five walks and a homer. So Tyon has won the battle more often, but bowed out of the battle fairly often as well. Um, Bobachette, Vlad Guerrero, Teoscar Hernandez, all solid against Tyon and decent samples. Uh, Lourdes Gurriel, Matt Chapman, Whit Merrifield, the guys who have struggled against him. Tyon's going to go up against Kevin Gosman. You know the deal with Gosman. Big strikeout rate, 81st percentile in the league. 97th percentile walk rate. He does not issue the free pass. You got a 77th percentile whiff rate and a 99th percentile chase rate. So what all those percentiles mean is basically Gosman gets you to expand the zone more than just about anyone. He gets you to swing and miss at a very high level. And even though he's working outside the zone like that, at times, he doesn't walk anyone. You're going to have a bad time. So why isn't Gosman a surefire Cy Young guy right now other than Justin Verlander? Well, he is the example of how wins above replacement differs at fan graphs and differs at baseball reference because baseball reference gives you credit only for what has happened. Fan graphs tries to contextualize what should have happened. And what I mean by that is Kevin Gosman's contact stats are a little below average in terms of exit velocity and hard hit and things like that. He hasn't been elite with that stuff. Not nearly as elite as the, the chase rates and the whiff rates and the walk rates. However, opponents have a 372 batting average on balls in play against him. So that's when the ball's put in play, that means no home run, no strikeout, no walk. It's just in the field of play. 372 batting average. The next highest qualified starter is at 330. So that's a 42-point difference. Nobody has a true talent level 372 batting average on balls in play. Not even close. He has been unfortunate, period. Even if you look at the stat cast stuff, even if you account for, even if you are a believer that pitchers have more control over batted ball outcomes than some metrics give them credit or blame for, he has been unfortunate with balls in play. Remember his last start? It's the worst the Jays' defense has looked ever, basically. Um, so he should have better days ahead in that regard, or at least less bad days. Um, He's going to throw that fastball about 50% of the time. It's been hit okay. Um, it's the splitter that carries everything for Gosman. He throws it 36% of the time, 44% swing and miss rate when guys swing at it, and just ridiculously poor numbers if you do make contact with it. The slider's there as well. It does get hit, but it's a pretty good secondary swing and miss pitch. He's faced this Yankees team a lot, um, but the sample isn't particularly recent. Early in the season, he gave up two over five and two-thirds against them with nine strikeouts. Not a bad start. 
Um, but that's the rest of the sample against the Yankees is a little dated. He didn't pitch against them at all last year. So you're getting into guys facing him when they were with different teams or, or going way back. 128 plate appearances, uh, 381 expected weighted on base average. That is not good. But again, the sample's a little dated and noisy. Uh, Josh Donaldson, Aaron Hicks, Andrew Benintendi all have big samples against him with about the results you'd expect from those guys. Nothing special, high or low. Anthony Rizzo's been a disaster, one for 12 against them. And here's the headline item. Aaron Judge is eight for 20 against Kevin Gosman with four walks and three homers. So shocker, Aaron Judge, the guy who is excellent against everyone, uh, has been excellent against Kevin Gosman. Aaron Judge is a, a bit of a marvel statistically. I mean, he's a marvel to watch. I was, there was a play yesterday where he didn't hit the ball extremely well. Well, he was a ground ball, the third, and they couldn't turn two because judge also is extremely fast. Uh, it's not fair. He is a super athlete. When we're going to take a break, when we come back, we're going to talk to Sarah Langs of MLB.com. Our favorite stack cast pal about how special Aaron judge is about how special Vladimir Guerrero jr. Is. And we're going to whip around the league a little bit. Uh, I also want to revisit the Matt Chapman defense discussion we have in Mike Petriello a couple weeks ago because Chapman has had a couple of really solid defensive games of late. Sarah Langs next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Great daily gambling advice from JD, Blake, and Ailish in the Fan Morning Show's Wake and Rake. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jays and Yankees continue their series tonight. 7.05, first pitch. Ben Wagner on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It's a fun series between a couple of StatCast unicorns. Let's bring in Sarah Langs of MLB.com. Of fielding questions, of circling the bases this week. Sarah Langs, where are you not this week? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Far, far too kind, but thank you for having me here. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, I didn't even mention you. You filled in for Buster only again this week. <laughs> you, uh, ah, Friday couldn't come soon enough, I guess. <laughs> hey, there's no uh, Mondays to Fridays in the sports world. You know that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we got weekend games coming up. Everything else, it's great. I love baseball season, so it's awesome. Um, that's great. Uh, so I, I have to ask you, I know Giancarlo Stanton is injured right now, but generally you post the stat cast leaders fairly often. You, you're always on top of it on Twitter. If there's a kind of a, an anomaly in some of the numbers and Giancarlo Stanton's all over it. Aaron judge is all over it. And Vladimir Guerrero jr. Is all over it. Uh, we got a crowd like a stat cast King at some point, <laughs> who are you leaning toward? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, Vlad is well well on his way. Excuse me. <clears throat> wow, excuse me. <laughs> Vlad is well on his way to being the king. But I would say right now it has to be Stan. I mean, Stan has been doing this since before we even had Staka. 
And that's the one thing I wish is that we had numbers for everything he did before them. <laughs> but Vlad is amazing. And I mean, especially this year with the fact that Sven is out, it might be Vlad right now. But of course, there's also Aaron Judge <laughs> who crushes baseball. I mean, this series, if Stan were healthy, you could see 115 mile an hour off the bat, left and right. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty wild to get into those uh, exit velocity leaders and the low launch angle guys. It's all mm-hmm. Vlad and, and Stanton. The hey, this barely scraped by the wall. I, I think they're competing to hit the first ground ball home run. Um, Vlad hit one the other day, the lowest launch angle I believe that we have in the StatCast era. Um, are you ever surprised that, like, I, I know it's only a couple years we have the data for, but are you ever surprised that guys are finding new new things to do uh, or for us to uncover? No, I mean, it's amazing. Like, things that these guys managed to do. You're right. He had the 15-degree line drive home run. That was tied with Stan for the lowest one this year. It was tied with, I believe, himself for his lowest and the Blue Jays' lowest track by Sodcast. It's incredible. You know, the lowest launch angle on a home run since 2015 is 13 degrees. It was a Stanton one a couple of years ago. I fully expect Vlad to find a way to do that at some point here this year or sometime soon. So you mentioned when you were talking about Giancarlo that, that you wish we had it back a little further so we could contextualize his er, the earlier parts of his career. Um, if you could get StatCast data for anyone, and you can go back as far as you want with this, um, who would you pick? Like, like if we could grab the numbers for someone historically, someone before StatCast, so we had a comparison for today's guys, uh, who would you pick? I think I would have to go with Willie Mays. Just because if you're getting data for someone before him, I want the all-time great. And, you know, Babe Ruth would be fun. I would love some uh, sprint speed from him. I know that, you know, we'd want the home run distances and everything. But I'd like to know how fast he was running. But my automatic answer is Willie Mays will take catch probability on the catch and figure out how far all of those homers were really going. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, my mind went to Barry Bonds just because he was doing so much yeah. stuff by counting stat. But I do, I, I do wonder if like it just wouldn't be interesting after a certain point. Uh, Mays getting the defensive side of it is a uh, is a very cool angle. Um, so let's talk about the the Yankees. I mean, Judge is so much fun and and is going to win MVP and Stanton is on the IL, so he's not really a factor right now. Um, But when you look at this slide, the Yankees are on 12 and 23 in their last 35 games. What stands out to you about what's going on in New York? You know, the biggest thing with them right now is they're not slugging judges. But in August, their slugging percentage is below 400 as a team. Last I checked, it was around 360, 365. And that's with the fact that Judge is slugging above 600 this month. So it just tells you where everybody else is at. And it's fascinating to me. I mean, I really, really thought 
that Josh Johnson walk-off Grand Slam, the ultimate Grand Slam, if you like that term, trailing by three, hitting the walk-off Grand Slam uh, two days ago, I really thought that would ignite this team. You know, that's not a stats thing. It's an intangible. But doing something like that in that moment, really thought that would carry them moving forward. And then they were totally flat last night. So pitching has definitely let them down to a point. But it's the fact that they're not scoring those tons of runs that they were early in the year. What did you make of their decision to move off of Joey Gallo? Because Gallo's a guy, obviously he was going through it very badly this year. He's a guy who's had some low lows in his career, but he's another guy who kind of, when you dig into the advanced stuff, it was still, oh, well, he's hammering the ball. Maybe better days are ahead. And then we immediately see him take off with the Dodgers. It was it was kind of predictable, but um, do you think they made a mistake there and not waiting it out? Or, or is that something where sometimes a guy just needs a change of scenery for things to click? You know, another non-stats thing, but I really think change of scenery was part of it there. I mean, Lindsay Adler at The Athletic wrote a great story with him, a really heartbreaking one, when he was still a Yankee, but to, leading up to the trade deadline where he talked about how disappointed he was in his performance in New York and how he couldn't really walk around the city and his, his lack of comfort generally in the area based on his play. And it was rare to see a guy really open up like that. So I give him all the credit in the world for having that conversation. But I really think he just feels more comfortable now. And, you know, Yankee fans are probably the most passionate fans. I mean, all fans are very passionate. And the way that they kind of piled on him is sort of what happens when you have passionate fans. So I would never say that they shouldn't have acted that way. But I think it was just a situation that wasn't going to get better. And to your point, yes, everything says he will crush the ball. He also will strike out a lot, and he still is. And that's not against him. I mean, I thought the most impressive thing about him is his defense, which is really good. But they went out and got Harrison Bader for center field for a different position. So they still kind of addressed that part as well. Um, speaking of Lindsay Adler, who you mentioned, uh, she just tweeted that Giancarlo Stanton is expected to start a rehab assignment tomorrow so maybe some better days ahead for the Yankees offensively uh, Sarah you mentioned the Joey Gallo's defense and, and I'm glad defense came up because obviously that's the hardest thing for us to still kind of grasp statistically and we have some metrics that go certainly deeper than errors and outfield assists um, but you still never you know you can't be as comfortable I don't think as you can on the offensive side or the pitching side. Um, I'm curious as to your take on Jackie Bradley Jr. And, and Jackie Bradley Jr. not just as a player, but more as kind of a, a bigger picture question where the Jays bring him in. They designate Bradley Zimmer for assignment. Uh, over the last two years in a small-ish sample, the metrics would say Bradley Zimmer has been a better defensive center fielder and been a little bit better on the base paths, obviously long-term and by reputation, Jackie Bradley jr. Has been one of the best defensive center fielders like we've ever seen. Um, 
when you look at defense and you try to blend, you know, reputation, what your eyes are seeing, what the samples say, sometimes small when a guy's playing, you know, like Bradley, a couple different positions. Um, I don't know how to exactly wrap that question up, but how do you balance small sample defensive metrics that we have and what your eyes or your experience with a player is telling you? It's a really good question. You know, I don't think there's one solid answer. But my guess for the Jays and the thinking here was really they'd seen what Zimmer could do. And, of course, neither of these guys are really bringing any sort of bat at this point. I mean, Zimmer has had flashes, flashes of high exit velo and some intriguing things, but overall has not been able to sustain that. And I do think that a track record and a history of being such a good defensive center fielder for Bradley probably played in here a lot. I mean, if you look at the metrics, as you said, Bradley has maybe not been as good as Zimmer in certain ways. Over the last few years, but overall, he's still a guy who the number one thing I think of with him is his jump. So how well he moves in those first three seconds of the play and moving in the correct direction quickly, all of that. And even throughout all of his other struggles, JBJ is towards the top of the list with that. And I also wonder if experience with him played in. I mean, he was in the AL East for so long. The team got to really see him, you know, take take base hits away from their batters. And I wonder if when he was available, that kind of rung a bell as well. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think that's a, a pretty good read on it. Um, I want to ask you as well about Matt Chapman's defense. We had Mike Petriello, your colleague, on a couple weeks ago, and he had noticed that all the metrics about the Jays' infield defense had said it was one of the most improved in baseball, it was one of the top units, and then, weirdly, Matt Chapman didn't grade out super well. And when Mike dove deeper into the numbers, it was throwing. And, you know, maybe he pulled some clips and we looked at some stuff uh, together that, that showed maybe Chapman was having a little trouble with the grip on the ball or, or the release. Um, I don't know if he heard that or saw that or whatever, um, but Chapman has had a couple of really tremendous games uh, defensively here. Um, so this is a, a similar kind of question to the Jackie Bradley Jr. one. Um, but when you look at a gold glove caliber infielder like Chapman with some noisy stats, um, are you inclined to think that we just need bigger sample sizes for, for something like a third baseman's throwing over the course of a season? I mean, I do think that the throws, like what Mike's looking to, that makes total sense to me. Also, given the injury history, you know, he was kind of dealing with that injury for the better part of almost three years, you know, in 2020, missing time last year. And now this year, finally fully being healthy. And you never know how any injury could really affect any part of the game. But I could really see how for him that could potentially affect throwing. And he is a guy who is always going to get to the ball. So I think isolating the actual throws makes a ton of sense. You know, he's played a lot. So I don't think it's just a question of, 
sample size or anything like that. But another thing that I do wonder about is positioning, you know, and I'm never going to be anti-shift or any of that. But there is something to be said for being on a new team and the guys you're playing next to are different. Now, he's probably playing next to better infielders now than he was in Oakland, minus having Olsen there at first. But I do wonder if there's a comfort level if his own read on certain plays is kind of still uh, still adjusting. So that's something you wouldn't see in the numbers directly, but could certainly be sort of what's happening with the number you see, if that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense to me, Sarah. Uh, I want to do a couple quick ones with you. Not necessarily. Well, one is Jay specific for sure. So um, you did uh, on the second episode of Fielding Questions, your new podcast with Mandy Bell. Um, you guys went over what makes a good ballpark. What do you look for in uh, a ballpark being special or one of your favorites? The Blue Jays recently announced that over the next couple off seasons, Rogers Center is going to undergo uh, like $300 million in renovations over the course of a couple off seasons. What would be at the top of your list to add or change to Rogers Center? I mean, I've never been there. It's still on my list. So that's the top of we my gotta get list. You, yeah, we got to get you up to here. Get there. Yeah, yeah we got to get you. So, I mean... I've seen it on TV. It looks amazing. The atmosphere is, of course, really, really awesome, especially these last two years with the team being really exciting. I'm not sure I can give a great answer to it, only because, you know, my answer is having me there. That is the renovation <laughs> I would like to say. Yeah, well, that would be that would be great. Um, so... Uh, Okay, um, another one. I saw you post this on Twitter the other day, and I'll bring it up because the Jays just played him, and he's Canadian. Uh, Josh Naylor, the, like, fastest Canadian of all time now, apparently. Um, How, how, so for anyone who didn't catch it, Josh Naylor had this incredible hustle down the line, and the sprint speed that got measured for him was just way faster than what he normally puts up. Um, Can you... Think of any other kind of unusual ones like that or moments where you're like, how did that slow guy find that gear? I mean, I feel like, uh, was it Yachty or Pools? One of them scored from first earlier this year in a very similar kind of situation. (laughs) Josh Naylor's was the first to third, but, you know, same kind of concept. Um, I'll also think pre-Stagcast, again, one I would like to have numbers on. How about the Benji Molina triple <laughs> in his uh, cycle? I feel like that is the go-to. But that Naylor moment was so much fun. I know you guys are always looking out for the Canadian players. And he had this celebration yes. at third. I'm not a WWE fan, but I <laughs> believe it was a John Cena thing with I'm so fast, they can't see me. Yeah. It was a lot of fun to say. Yeah, I can't wait for him to do that for Canada in the World Baseball Classic, hopefully. Finger, yeah. Fingers crossed. Um Teoscar Hernandez is a guy that comes up whenever I look at the sprint speed stuff. And I, even though I've heard it like 20 times, I'm like, huh, really? He's one of the fastest guys. Um, (laughs) Are there any other like underappreciated fast guys like that, where you look at the numbers and you're like, I never would have thought that that guy was that fast. I feel like my number one there is Mike Trout. I mean, Mike Trout is a guy who is consistently on the list for 
90th percentile in hard hit rate and sprint speed. And the other guys on that list right now are Byron Buxton and Julio Rodriguez, who you would immediately associate with power and speed. When you think of Trout, you remember he stole a ton of bases in his rookie year and a little bit the year after, but he's kind of stopping that kind of speed guy. But it shows you how sprint speed, and I think with Tasker as well, how it's not just about stolen bases or something like that. It's about the overall average when you are just, you know, <laughs> letting it go on the base tops. And so uh, for me, Mike Trout is never the guy you think of as a speedster. You don't think of him as slow, but you don't think of him as faster than, you know, most of the league. And yet there he is. Uh, last one for you, Sarah, before we let you get on with your Friday. Uh, you were on Circling the Bases this week, and I just want to give you space to talk about something that I know has been one of your favorite stories of late. Uh, the Brett Beatty experience. Got to be one of the f- most fun debut weeks in recent memory. Oh, my gosh. I mean, anytime a guy homers in his first career at bat, you know, there's only a handful of guys who have done that in baseball history. For the Mets, he was the fifth to do it, the first since Mike Jacobs in 2005. And for the stat crowd, I mean, he also had a 113-mile-an-hour fielder's choice in that game. The only, there were only two other Met rookies to even reach 113 once as a rookie under Stackhouse, you know, Pete Alonzo a handful of times. Michael Conforto just once. So it's been really interesting to see. I mean, he was a guy who they almost called up out of necessity. Eduardo Escobar hurt. Luis Guillorme hurt. They needed a third baseman. He'd only been at AAA for about two weeks. And so I think they were hoping to give him more time there. But he comes up, and he's looked pretty good so far. I mean, the question is defense, so we can look at those metrics in a few weeks once he's been up longer and see if there's anything there. But the bad has been, I think, better than, certainly better than I expected for his first, you know, three days in the majors. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a blast. And anytime a guy debuts like that and it's, you know, must watch, it reminds me of when Vlad first came up. So, uh, and that was, that was lock in and watch every plate appearance. Uh, Sarah Lang's MLB.com fielding questions, circling the bases, filling in for Buster (laughs) only sometimes. Uh, Nobody has deserved this weekend more than you uh, this week. So thanks for taking the time out and have a great weekend. Of course. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Sarah Langs of MLB.com, the top follow if you're looking for StatCast stuff. S. Lang on sports, uh, S. Langs on sports, rather, uh, on Twitter. Uh, So make sure you give her a follow. Um, We've got June Lee from ESPN and Around the Horn coming up in a minute here. Uh, We're also going to take some of your texts to 590-590. We'll uh, take a look at the lineups when they, if they come out by 5 o'clock, we'll see. and we'll go, I mean, we already did kind of the pitching matchup, but we could, we could take another look at, at Gosman Tyon. We'll take a look at the lineups as they come out. Um, we'll take your text to 590-590. And next, on Jay's Talk Plus, June Lee on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. The smartest takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. Happy Friday. We're here with you for one more segment. I mean, we as Jay's Talk Plus, I'm sticking around to do uh, fan drive time with Ben Ennis for a little bit after as well. So you'll get a little bit more of me. Uh, but we got one more segment to go here on Jay's Talk Plus, And we'll kick it over to fan drive time. And then Ben Wagner comes in for you at 7.05 for Jay's Yankees on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Show Ali and Julia Kreutz have Jay's Talk for you post game. A reminder... No Sportsnet broadcast of the game tonight. It's an Apple TV Plus exclusive. So fire that up. Figure it out ahead of time. It's free. Go check that out. But uh, yeah, Apple TV Plus is your only option for viewing. Then you got Sportsnet Radio Network if you want to listen to it on the radio with Ben. Let's take a whip around the AL East. June Lee of ESPN and Around the Horn is uh, a guy who grew up in Boston, has some existing frustrations as a Sox fan uh, and now is New York based and has been on the Yankees beat of late. Uh, we talked to him a little earlier in the season after he did a tremendous feature on Bo Bichette. Uh, so let's bring June in. Let's talk about the Yankees. He's now covering. Let's see what Red Sox fan young June would have thought about that. Uh, and let's see what his conversations uh, with Bo Bichette have been like more recently down in New York. Joined now by June Lee of ESPN, of Around the Horn, Baseball Tonight. Uh, June, how you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, better after last night's Jay-Z Yankees game. I, I imagine at this point over at ESPN, the kind of Yankees dread watch beat that you're on, you, you could have used that one to go the other way. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely on the Yankees dread watch beat. I think it's just a... So the last couple of weeks, it's been like, hey, the Yankees are doing bad. We have to watch out for this. I mean, the Yankees are already one of the biggest stories in baseball, regardless of what they're doing on a year-to-year basis. But, you know, when you start the season historically hot and you reset the expectation for some fans that, you know, they're going to break the 2001 Mariners, you know, best regular season record. And, you know, this happens. I, I think that there's a lot of panicking happening within the Yankees fan base at the current moment. I know that you have spoken to or, or at least quoted from Aaron Boone a couple times throughout that. And, you know, I imagine this is a fascinating spot for a manager to be in where on the one hand, your team is still in first place. You know, you can be that team on the other. You're 12 and 23 in your last 35. Um, what sense have you gotten from the manager's room in terms of how they're trying to navigate this for the team? Well, it's interesting because a couple of days ago, he had this introspective moment during the press conference where he was reflecting on the failures and kind of the hardest times of his career where he was really struggling and not doing as well as he would have liked. And he was kind of trying to take that moment as a source of inspiration to try to motivate the guys because, you know, it's the cliche at this point that every season's long, you know, there's always going to be ups and downs, especially within a baseball season where there's 162 games. Um, but you know, there's a level of kind of, I think the Yankees are looking at themselves right now and they have to decide who they are and they have to figure out, are we going to be a team that, you know, facing the pressure of the outside world right now, seeing, you know, how much the fan base is, you know, even calling for Aaron Boone to be fired, which he had to address in a press conference yesterday. They have to decide whether or not that they're going to be a team that can, you know, weather the storm and potentially can contend for a World Series championship this year, or if they're going to let this moment of, of downness kind of continue to boil up and, and continue to spiral and make things even worse. You know, they've done a lot of things trying to shake up the roster and 
I think Jordan Montgomery being extremely successful in, in St. Louis since he's gotten traded for Harrison Bader doesn't help, and especially because Harrison Bader hasn't even played a game for the Yankees yet. Um, but there's a moment of identity, and I think an identity crisis that the Yankees are facing at this current moment. Yeah, and, and not just Montgomery, but Joey Gallo, too, who I know was like a really well-liked guy and kind of took a lot of the heat as the lightning rod from, from the team. So, um, you know, a team that made a ton of trade deadline additions may be feeling the trade deadline subtractions more than anything. Um, a lot of this roster juggling has also been because half the team is injured. And I know that this is baseball and you never get to look at your injured list and be like, well, things will get better. But in the Yankees case, they stacked so many wins early that they're the rare case where maybe they can look at that. I know that's hard on a day-to-day basis, but when you zoom out, would you still be confident that this team can compete with say a Houston Astros? If Bader can get back, if Giancarlo can get back, if they get even a, ounce of good luck with the bullpen health from here yeah because i mean it's look you look at the town of the roster and i was talking to the guys in the clubhouse whether it's james tyon or or michael king or, or clay holmes you look at the talent on this roster it's a thing that you can fall back on knowing that you know the yankees have one of the most talented roster guy for guy in all of baseball and they have the depth on top of that and so i think that when you know, there's this sense of identity crisis about trying to figure out whether or not this team can actually compete. That's the thing that the guys can look back on. You know, there was almost a sense of complacency, I think, that had built because of the early success that uh, the Yankees had this season. I mean, Clay Holmes had told me that, you know, that they're kind of searching for their sense of urgency again because they had such an enormously going into the All-Star break. Even when you look at the division right now, like, there's a level of, the fact that the Yankees have struggled, but their lead in the division hasn't really shrunk that much because a lot of the other teams have had their ups and downs. The Blue Jays, uh, as you well, very, very much well know, uh, you know, have to struggled as well and kind of coinciding with this. And there, I also talked to you know a talent evaluator for another team who said, I would rather be the Yankees right now almost than the Dodgers because you would rather have your struggles out of the way, your your big identity crisis moment happening in August versus going into September or, or even in October. And so there, there's at least a couple teams from the outside looking at the Yankee situation and thinking that they're in a good position because they are struggling right now versus struggling in the postseason. I will respectfully disagree on two fronts. One is that I don't know that it would ever be bad to be the Dodgers. And two, um, you wrote this thing the other day about the Yankees needing a spark. That's a quote from a team. And then I, I think based on the timing in between the time he wrote that and it went to publish, uh, Josh Donaldson hit a group walk-off grand slam. Yes. And you think maybe, oh, that's the spark. But the reason I, I don't feel as optimistic is that within that is – uh, Kid Rock being played as the music to kind of break the slump. That's a giant red flag, right? Going to Kid Rock to turn <laughs> things around. Yeah. 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 I mean, no, it's, it's like, uh, it's like how the angels a couple went months ago, went to Nickelback yeah. where everyone in their lineup was trying to play Nickelback as their walk-up song to go, uh, to try to break out of the slump. Like if you're searching for the depths of music, going to Kid Rock or Nickelback to try to, to try to find some hope, uh, I think you might already be searching in the wrong place. There's no doubt that Donaldson was the guy who chose Kid Rock, though, right? <laughs> I think of all the guys in the Yankees clubhouse, Josh Donaldson is definitely the guy that uh, is telling telling the clubhouse that Kid Rock is, is the is the <laughs> artist that's going to turn things around. Uh, all right, let's look at the Jays side a little bit. We had you on earlier in the season. You wrote this great profile on Bobashed and kind of his mental approach and how he's gone through the last couple of years, how his leadership kind of fits next to Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s and at the time Charlie Montoyo's. Obviously, the Blue Jays clubhouse dynamic has 
changed. They've struggled. They let the manager go. They got this boost, and then they struggled again. And through that, Bo Bichette has, not to a Joey Gallo degree, but he's gotten some scorn from Jays fans in part because he hasn't hit as well as we've seen in the past, uh, in part because sometimes his body language or facial expression, you know, either he's extremely stoic and we, we got to credit him for being so zen or uh, he has some poor body language at times. Um, having gotten to know him a little bit, when you look at the up and downs the Jays have had, the up and downs Bichette has had, do you think that there is a little bit of, I guess, snowball potential when not only are you struggling at the plate um, and the team's struggling, but there's a leadership component that comes with that, that you're probably putting some additional pressure on your shoulders as one of the faces of the franchise, as one of the voices of the clubhouse? Yeah, I actually got to talk to Bo yesterday before the game, and Perfect. he kind of exuded that sense, that, that sense of zen, that kind of <laughs> stoicism, sense of calm. Um, and I didn't really sense any kind of level of anxiety because I think he knows that, you know, having watched his dad, that there's not just in the within the season, but throughout the course of a lot of players' careers, there's ups and downs. Um, and you know, as much as Bo has definitely been kind of a catalyst for a lot of the team's offensive issues this year, in terms of not producing as much as people would have expected, I mean, I think you can look straight at the rotation between the injuries for Hyunjin Ryu and uh, Jose Barrios and Yusei Kikuchi, obviously got demoted to the bullpen, um, as being kind of even bigger problems within the Blue Jays right now. I mean, this is a team that's still in position to make the playoffs despite having you know, three incredibly important starters from their rotation, you know, either injured or not performing. Um, you know, Bo is a huge part of the fact that they haven't been consistent offensively because he hasn't been consistent offensively, and he's one of the major catalysts for that lineup. But there's so many places you can look on this team right now where there's kind of issues on their roster and, um, you know, people underperforming. And I think Bo is definitely a part of that. Um, but there is a larger issue of just underperformance in general on the Blue Jays right now. For sure. Um, when you look at a young core like that and how guys, you know, we, we've heard a little bit of rumbling, you know, the room misses Marcus Semien. Okay, well, first of all, statistically, that I don't know that that would be helping a ton. Um, and also, you know, the hope with a Marcus Semien is that some of that leadership and, and example setting rubs off on the young guys so they can become the leaders. Um, you kind of mentioned this with, you know, while the Yankees are going through their crisis now, they'll be better for it later. Are you a believer that with a young core that you hope eventually develops into your leaders, that they do have to go through stretches like this to kind of get where they need to go long-term? Yeah. I think that if for anyone who's successful, whether it's in baseball or outside of baseball, you know, having these moments of pressure, having these moments of, uh, you know, struggle of downtime of, of kind of losing your sense of identity. It's incredibly important for, you know, it doubled down and to, to double down and also affirm just to who you are as a team, as a person, as a player, and, and trying to figure out where that sense of, you know, confidence, that belief, whether that's from external validation, whether it's, you know, from the media's expectations of a team, uh, being a championship contender or whether or not you truly believe deep down that you can be on a team that wins a championship um, like the Blue Jays, I think, have been this year. And I think there's kind of been a push and pull there where, you know, the Blue Jays had so much external expectation, way more so than they have in years past. And it, I think that there's a, a sense of trying to find themselves right now. In, in some ways of the Yankees where, you know, are we really this 
team that can win a championship this year? Are we really one of the most young, young and talented teams in baseball? Um, do the Blue Jays actually believe that versus, you know, buying into the hype of external expectations and falling short of them? So in terms of those expectations, at, at least internally, I, I agree with you. I think that's a really uh, astute read on the situation. Um, externally, I know that you have covered the Red Sox a little bit. You've covered the Yankees a little bit. You're obviously a, a national voice uh, at ESPN and with Around the Horn. When you look at the way the AL is stacking up, do you, would you still feel, and, and this was kind of the sentiment around the league earlier in the year, so I'm curious if you still feel it, and no pressure since you're on Toronto radio or anything, but um, as the Yankees and Astros pulled away, it did seem like there was a bit of a majority opinion that, oh, the Jays are the te- the one other team you don't really want to run into in the playoffs because if things click, look out. Do you think the Jays are still in that kind of second tier on their own? Or have they, like, would you put the other teams, uh, Tampa Bay, the AL Central teams, even Baltimore, uh, kind of on par with the Jays at this point? I mean, I would watch out for Cleveland right now because I think mm-hmm. that they're just playing really well and a lot of things are clicking. And I really, really do think that Tampa Bay should also be in that conversation because, you know, th- they still have the depth, even though they've had guys like Wanda Franco and Manny Margot go down on the injured list and have been out of their lineup. They're still winning baseball games because of the depth of that pitching staff, whether it's in the rotation or in the bullpen. Um, I-, I think that they're right there with Toronto in terms of just the, you know, across the roster depth and talent that makes them, uh, you know, puts those teams in a position to, to challenge the Yankees and the Astros. And, you know, it's easy to look at the regular season records and just be like, oh, maybe Houston or the Yankees or whatever will, will run away with this. But you know, I think year after year, you see wild card teams make it to the World Series, win World Series titles. You just need to get to October. This is not the NBA. This is not uh, the NFL where number one seeds, number two seeds, number three seeds are always getting to the end. Uh, baseball, I think, is more similar to hockey in that regard and that you just never know once you get to the postseason. So I think the goal for a lot of these teams is just just get to the postseason because it's about getting hot at the right time. Okay, so June, we, we did some Yankees, we did some Jays. Regrettably, I also have to ask you about the Red Sox. You did this terrific piece written and on baseball tonight, uh, sitting down with not only the sons of, but in some cases the players themselves, Pedro, Manny, Ortiz, Chef, Falk, um, I guess just first of all, how how cool was that to do and put together and have those interviews? It was really, really cool. I mean, it's just I think for me as uh, someone who grew up on those 2003-2004 Red Sox um, was just kind of an enormous nostalgia trip. And it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, these you know, these guys are the sons of, uh, you know, the, the sons of fathers. Like as much as we love putting guys like Manny and Ortiz and, you know, our, all these kind of athletic heroes on pedestals. You, know, you you talk and sit down with their sons. It's like, oh, these guys are, are real guys. You know, they're real. They're real human beings with, you know, uh, dads who are away for so much of the year um, because of their jobs and their schedules. And um, you know, you see the way that their sons have turned out. I think there, I was I was kind of taken aback by how grounded they were for having the famous last names of the famous fathers that they did and the perspective that they, that that brought um, to to their worldview. Um, it was, it was just like a pretty really, it was just a really surreal kind of experience being able to, to report a story like that and seeing, you know, just the circle of life kind of manifest that way in baseball. Yeah. And we're pretty familiar with it here in Toronto with Vlad and Kevin Biggio and Bo Bichette. Um, I have to ask though, you, you said you grew up on that era of Red Sox teams. Well, then the other day you're also zooming with Derek Jeter is young June Lee upset at you for crossing that line and zooming with Jeter. 
Uh, I mean, I think I would have wanted to, to talk to Derek Jeter. I, I had an opportunity when I was in high school as an intern for the Boston Herald, you know, 16, 17 years old, to I think speak with Derek Jeter once. And I, I'd always had a kind of an immense respect for the way that Derek Jeter carried himself. I hated the way that, you know, his you know, exceptional performance affected, you know, the way that the Reds, you know, affected my happiness as a Red Sox fan. Um, but I think it's always fascinating to be able to speak to people who had achieved, who have achieved things at such a high level in the way that Derek Jeter has and, and the way that, you know, their focus, their mindset, all of that kind of shapes the way that they go about things on the field. Um, and, so, you know, would, like, third grade me have been unhappy about it? Probably. Would, like, high school me, college me been happy about it? Probably just because I think that, you know, as much as the fandom can uh, <laughs> make make things emotional and irrational at times, and uh, for me, like, you know, I still think that Derek Jeter is one of the most overrated infielders <laughs> in terms of in baseball history, but you can't deny the fact that the man has achieved a lot of great things and brings a perspective and a wisdom that um, most people just can't have because they haven't achieved the things that Derek Jeter has had. Uh, all right, one more Red Sox adjacent one for you. And who knows, maybe with you crossing over to Jeter, Ben and Tendy getting cheered when he comes back with the Yankees. What's going on there? Um, but maybe maybe things are healing in the ALEs. Uh, the Jays just picked up a former Red Sox as well in Jackie Bradley Jr. Um, certainly some questions about how much he has left at the plate or, or where exactly his defense would be on an everyday basis. But uh, that seems like a guy who's pretty beloved by the city of Boston. What can Blue Jays fans expect from Jackie Bradley Jr.? I mean, you're going to see one of the best defensive baseball, you know, outfielders in, of the last decade. I mean, Jackie's still an incredible defender. The question is whether or not, you know, his production at the plate uh, from an offensive standpoint can kind of make up for the fact uh, or, or kind of justify keeping his glove around because as much as he is an enormous positive in the field, uh, the last couple of years he's been a, a major downside uh, on the offensive part of the plate. Um, I mean, beyond that, he's just a kind of a really grounded, humble dude and, um, is always going to be just a great addition to the clubhouse in terms of personality. Uh, I, I think he makes everyone around him just act more humble and grounded and is just a good person to have around. He, he was considered a leader for such a long time in the Red Sox clubhouse. And so um, the big question is whether or not that, you know, the lack of offensive production can justify the bat and um, keep his personality around. But, you know, as, as long as, you know, he's around, I think, Blue Jays fans, um, unless he's a major offensive downside are going to love having Jackie on that team. Yeah. I think if he plays enough for Jays fans to get mad at him, other things have gone wrong. So yeah, maybe some, uh, some upside only uh, June. Thanks so much for taking the time out, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. June Lee of ESPN and around the horn. We are, we got about eight minutes left with you before we kick it over to Ben Ennis and fan drive time. We still don't have a blue Jays lineup. They're making us wait. I guess refresh the apps, refresh the pages. That's okay. It's a three to five show. You're not always going to have the lineup. We do have a Yankees lineup though. So we'll give that to you. This is who will go up against Kevin Gosman and line up behind Jamison Tyon. DJ LeMahieu, Aaron Judge, Anthony Rizzo, Josh Donaldson, Andrew Benintendi, Gleyber Torres, Isaiah Kainer-Falefa, Oswaldo Cabrera, Kyle Higashioka. Kevin Gosman should be all right. He doesn't have the best of, I mentioned earlier, in kind of setting up the pitching matchup. He doesn't have the best of career numbers against the active Yankees, but there's a lot of old sample in there. And we know that Kevin Gosman wasn't quite the same Kevin Gosman until recently. Uh, he faced them earlier in the year, allowed two earned over five and two-thirds with nine strikeouts. 
And then you're looking at guys like Donaldson, Hicks, and Benintendi uh, who have large samples of just being themselves against Gosman. Basically, Hicks not in the lineup tonight uh, as he continues to see his playing time dwindle a little bit. The big one you're worried about is shocker Aaron Judge. Eight for 20 in his career against Gosman with four walks and three home runs. Show me the pitcher Aaron Judge doesn't have bonkers numbers against. Uh, Anthony Rizzo, who hits behind Judge and DHs tonight, is one for 12 career against Gosman. So maybe you're okay in the balance there. But yeah, of course, you're looking out for Aaron Judge. What a. Uh, what else are you going to do but pitch around Aaron Judge these days? Even Sarah laid it out for us a little earlier. Um, Judge has not cooled off at all, and the Yankees' team numbers are still pretty bad over the last month, month and a half, because everyone around him has been just that rough. You know the deal with Gosman. Fastball splitter slider. Going to get you to chase out of the zone. Despite that, he's not going to walk anyone. He'll get some good swing and miss, uh, and he has been... Very tough luck on the batting average and balls in play side. Even when we account for everything we can account for, that might blame a pitcher. He's still coming out 45 to 50 points of batting average uh, worse than we would maybe expect on balls in play. So less evil days ahead from the uh, batted ball gods, perhaps. Jameson Tyon gets the start for the Yankees. Mentioned it a little earlier that he is the best example in baseball of a guy who throws six pitches with regularity. There are only five pitchers, period, who have thrown six different pitches at least 100 times this year. Joe Musgrove is among them. That's the high watermark. You got Taiwan Walker, Kyle Gibson, and Chris Bassett as well. Jameson Tyon has a much more balanced approach across his six pitches than those five those other four names. He throws all of them at least 9% of the time. We might not see it a lot tonight. Tyon has only modest platoon splits, so not strong enough that the Jays should feel the need to force their bench lefties into the lineup. Against lefties, uh, what you'd see differently is uh, a few more fastballs and a lot of change-ups from Tyon, whereas against righties, he's going to lead slider and use that fastball as a kind of a, not a secondary pitch, but a compliment, a 1B, if you will. He'll also not throw the change up uh, to righties much at all. So that's what you're looking for when that one gets underway. Remind you one more time that the game is on Apple TV Plus tonight. So no Sportsnet television broadcast. Apple TV Plus is free. Make sure you give yourself a couple extra minutes to figure out how to load it up. Ben Wagner has the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. If not... First pitch is 7.05. Show Ali and Julia Kreutz will have Jay's talk for you after the game. Uh, a couple texts in the text line to round out the show for the week. AJ and Brampton asks, after seeing Montes' recent performance, are you glad the Jays didn't trade for him? He's had two pretty bad starts in his first three starts with the Yankees. I'm going to trust the larger sample there that says Montes is still pretty good. He's also, we don't know the too specific about it, but... He's also did been dealing with, you know, he was on the bereavement list for a little while. Um, you never know how that might affect a guy or what else could be going on there. It's also just a small sample. I think Montes will probably be uh, fine in the long run. Rob from Guelph 
says he doesn't want the Jays to get ahead of themselves, but let's say they sweep the Yankees only six games back. Uh, could they make a run for first? Um, it was the four game sweep of the Yankees last year that started that late season push. Yeah, but they didn't make it last year. Don't use that as the, as the example and the precedent, uh, at least find a time where they actually successfully pulled it off. Look, you sweep the series, you're six games back. There's a lot of baseball left and you've got another series against the Yankees. You could let yourself think on that. Uh, I'm personally, you know, I'm more concerned about those, the games of cushion in the wild card race right now, because that's the most immediate thing. Once you clear a couple games there, maybe you start putting your eyes on the Yankees, but yeah, winning, winning every game this weekend uh, would do a lot of good for you in a lot of different ways. So I like the optimism. Taryn and Ajax says Wednesday night felt like the turning point of the season. Stripling on point. Jimmy Garcia gets that third out. Um, feel like the team got some of its confidence back and Springer DHing and, and pinch hitting uh, was helping turn things around. That send of the inning felt like the sleeping giants woke up. Uh, I joked a little earlier in the show that last night was um, the narrative paradox game where both the Yankees and Blue Jays felt exactly how Taryn just laid it out coming into yesterday's game because the Yankees had just won an extra inning game with a walk-off grand slam the night before. Um, so obviously that could only be true for one team, but yeah, you have to think this improves the confidence. You have to think Jose Barrios having a good start and looking like Jose Barrios again, George Springer ha- being eight for 13 since coming off the IL um, Vlad hitting for some power, you know, up and down the lineup, some pretty good plate appearances by guys like Espinal and Lourdes Gurriel yesterday in support uh, of uh, the, the heavier lift in the offense, all of that's great. It's all moving in the right direction when you're getting wins and when the runs are coming. Um, it's hard to imagine a more uplifting stretch of innings than from the seventh inning in Wednesday's game to the third or fourth inning yesterday, uh, whichever of those was the beginning. Uh, apologies for forgetting. Um, that's it for Jay's Talk Plus for the week. Ben Ennis has fan drive time next. I'm going to stick around with him for a little bit on that one. Uh, ben Wagner has the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network tonight at 7. Show Ali and Julia Kreutz. Jay's talk after that. Uh, thank you to Ben Nicholson-Smith, to Ariel Helwani, to Sarah Langs, and to June Lee for coming on. Thanks to Derek behind the glass. Thanks to producer JR. Thanks to all of you. Hope you're headed for a very terrific weekend. And yeah, hope we're talking to Taryn's question about what the standings look like on Monday. I'm Blake Murphy for Sports at 590, The Fan. Mm-hmm.